Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. In this episode, we continue the series Partisans by looking at the story of the IRA member and later communist, Bob Doyle. This is the third instalment of Partisans, created by myself, Finn Dwyer, and Stuart Redden. It tells the forgotten stories of Irish people who fought in the Spanish Civil War between 1936 and 1939. Part 1 looked at the background to the conflict, while Part 2 introduced the first of our partisans, Aileen O'Brien, a shadowy figure who shed light on why Irish people fought for Spanish fascism. In this podcast, the last one set in Ireland before we moved to Spain, our focus turns to the life of Bob Doyle. An Irish Republican and later a communist, his life explains why people went to fight against fascism. Set to the backdrop of grinding poverty in Dublin slums in the early 20th century, this podcast is an evocative and fascinating journey through the lives of those on the margins of Irish society in the 1920s and 30s. Along the way, we will find ourselves in riots with fascists in the streets of Dublin and conflict within the IRA in the 1930s, which led many of its activists to Spain. However, the show begins in Bob Doyle's poverty-stricken childhood. His working-class background explained not only his motivations, but indeed those of thousands not only in Ireland, but across Europe, who travelled to Spain after 1936 to fight fascism. All told, it's a fascinating story. Partisans is listener-supported history. The weeks of research and writing, let alone recording, is all funded by people just like you who enjoy the podcast and support my work at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. The changes in the podcast this year, the increase in shows, and making Partisans a weekly series is only possible because of people like you who help with the show. So if you enjoy the podcast, check out patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast to find out how you can make a difference. You can also support the podcast by buying some of my Irish history pins in the online shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. These pins are beautiful, unique and affordable enamel and metal badges that are beautiful gifts for Christmas for anyone who likes history. And with each purchase, you really help the show. So you can check them out at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. 
Now, let's get on with the story of Bob Doyle. Early 20th century Dublin was a dangerous place. While the city was gripped by major trade union disputes, the 1916 Rising, the War of Independence and the Civil War, it was day-to-day life which posed the greatest risks to the population, particularly the working class. Life expectancy at the time was just 53 years of age, but even this statistic doesn't tell the full story. The working class of Dublin could not even expect to live to 53 It was hardly any surprise though. By the early 20th century, Dublin's housing was considered to be among the worst in the United Kingdom. A British government inquiry revealed that almost one third of the city population lived in what were decaying one-roomed tenements with primitive sanitary conditions where disease was rampant. It was a world where privacy didn't exist. Entire families, indeed in many cases three generations of the same family, often eight, slept and washed in the same room. Dublin's medical superintendent at the time, Charles Cameron, described the houses in one area of Dublin, the north inner city, as unfit for human habitation. James Plunkett, in his novel Strumpet City, created an evocative but accurate depiction of working class life where the poor survived on things the rich no longer needed. The children were wiry and usually barefooted. They lived on cast-offs. They came each morning from the crowded rooms in the cast-off houses of the rich, elegant Georgian buildings which had grown old and had been discarded. The clothes they wore had been cast off by their parents, who had bought them as cast-offs in the second-hand shops in Little Mary Street or Wine Tavern Street. If the well-to-do had stopped casting off, for even a little, the children would have gone homeless and fireless and naked. The experience of one working-class family just highlighted how hard this life could be. Peter Doyle and Margaret Aldrich had been married in 1904, but as a couple, with little money, they struggled to afford even the very basics. And even for a while, they lived at 33 King's Inn Street, where they shared one room with Margaret's parents and her sister Annie. By 1911, Margaret had given birth to three children. However, two died in infancy, and only one girl, Mary, then aged four, had survived. This was sadly an all too familiar feature of working class life. Indeed at the time 142 of every 1000 Dublin children did not survive infancy, the highest rate in any city in Ireland or Britain. For many in the poverty stricken neighbourhood where the Doyles lived, death stalked life. People grew old beyond their years. One woman, Sarah McGrath, aged only 34 in 1911, had already been married 20 years. She had given birth to at least 11 children, of which only seven had survived. When Margaret Doyle fell pregnant again in early 1915, fears that her next child would not survive this gauntlet poverty inflicted on them was surely a concern. It was only someone else's tragedy that ironically improved the chances that this child would live through the dangers of a Dublin childhood. In September 1913, Two run-down tenements had collapsed, killing seven residents on Church Street, close to where the Doyles lived. In the aftermath, Dublin Corporation finally agreed to demolish the existing dwellings and construct 48 new houses. This was, far and away, the best housing in the area. Families had two bedrooms, a sitting room and a kitchen, along with their own outdoor toilet. It even had a children's playground on the estate. 
1915, the Doyle family, expecting another child, were one of the first to receive one of these new houses, and it was here, on Church Street, where their next child would be born. He arrived in February 1916 and was christened Robert. However, while the Doyles may have escaped the filth of surrounding tenements, Robert Doyle, or Bob as he was known, would grow up surrounded by the horrific poverty most of his neighbours lived in, and it was inevitable this would scar him and shape his understanding of life and his world views. However, major political events in his childhood also had a bearing on him as well. Growing up in the north inner city of Dublin, some of the most bitter fighting in Ireland's struggle for independence from the British Empire formed the backdrop of young Bob Doyle's early years in life. Just two months after Bob was born, his neighbourhood was at the centre of a seminal event in modern Irish history, the 1916 Rising. The area around the Doyle family home on Church Street saw some of the fiercest battles between the rebels and the British army. During the course of the week, the army's Linen Hall barracks, a few hundred metres from their home, was set on fire by the rebels, causing a huge inferno that threatened to engulf the entire street. Then, as the fighting came to an end, the British army went on a murderous rampage through the neighbourhood. Sixteen of the Doyle's neighbours were brutally murdered in what became known as the North King Street Massacre. The peace that returned at the end of the Rising was short-lived. Indeed, Bob's early years were marked by continued conflict. By 1920, the area was a battlefield again, this time in the guerrilla fighting during the War of Independence. While this came to an end in later 1921, within a year the neighbourhood was engulfed in conflict yet again and it bore the brunt of the opening phase of the Civil War. The Four Courts explosion, covered in a recent episode, took place at the bottom of Church Street, where the Doyle's home was located. These events entrenched deeply held Republican sympathies in the community Bob grew up in and would be formative in his life. However, his family had very serious personal problems as well, problems that unquestionably shaped young Bob's life. While he was still only five years of age, Bob Doyle's family was torn apart. This began when his mother, Margaret, was forcibly removed from the family home and detained in the nearby Richmond Asylum. Bob's eldest sister had often recalled to her own children how she was haunted by the sight of her mother being dragged away by what she called the men in white coats, her long hair flying while screaming, Don't take me! Don't take me! In an age where there was little understanding of mental health, this was a terrifying ordeal, not only for the children, but for Margaret herself, given what awaited her in the asylum. She was detained in the Richmond Asylum, where she joined almost 20,000 people locked up in similar institutions across Ireland. What her precise diagnosis was remains unknown, but she may well not have been ill at all. A significant proportion of those incarcerated in such institutions at the time were described as melancholic or manic, usually just a euphemism for depression. Indeed, in Margaret's case, she may have been suffering from postnatal depression, given she had just given birth to another child only three months previously. Whatever the case, Grange Gorman Asylum was hardly an appropriate healing environment. Originally opened in 1814, it had expanded later in the century to accommodate 1,000 patients. However, by 1921, there were 1,640 people incarcerated there. Following his mother's effective imprisonment, Bob and three of his siblings were removed from the family home and taken into care by an order of nuns. 
Bob and his youngest sister Eileen were subsequently placed with a family in Sandyford, South County Dublin, before being moved on again to another family in Newtown Mount Kennedy in rural County Wicklow. This could not have been more different from the inner city Dublin Bob had grown up in and was a welcome change from the hardship of life he had experienced there. Indeed, he enjoyed the expanse of the countryside and the freedom to play in fields. However, at the age of 10, he was considered strong enough to be sent to work on a farm, an experience he described as lonely and a misery. To make matters worse, he suffered regular beatings at the hands of the farmer with whom the nuns had placed him with. It was only after several years in the late 1920s, when his mother had been released from Grange Gorman Asylum, that he was able to return to his family home in Dublin. Only aged around 13, the poverty, political turmoil and personal hardships he had endured all had a major impact on Bob, shaping his outlook on life, leaving him somewhat alienated from Irish society, which was hardly any surprise. Indeed, by his mid-teens, he was becoming increasingly politically aware and began to develop some radical ideas, although given his young age, these were conflicting and often contradictory. However, while his childhood had given him first-hand experience of injustice in the world, his journey to Spain really only began in earnest in the early 1930s. Before we delve into Bob's own personal experience though, it's worth pulling back and taking a look at the wider political landscape he was growing up in and becoming politically involved with. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the early 1930s, as Bob was beginning to find his feet in the world, it was also a time where great change seemed imminent in Ireland for a few months, at least anyway. At the time, the governing party, Commonwealth, had been in power for a decade since they had emerged victorious in the civil war, they had adopted deeply conservative policies and as we saw in last week's episode, independence, for the likes of Bob Doyle at least, was a major disappointment. Commonwealth had done little to alleviate the grinding poverty and the appalling housing conditions of Dublin's working class. However, in the early 1930s, a new political party was gaining ground. Formed in 1926, 
Fianna Foyle, had emerged from the IRA which had been defeated in the Civil War. Initially, at least, they seemed to offer change, and this was certainly the case in the election year of 1932. While Cumann-Lingwale, after ten years in government, had little new to offer, Fianna Fáil laid out an alluring programme. They promised extensive house-building initiatives that would clear the slums of Dublin, a redistribution of land to the rural poor, and to tackle mass unemployment through public works. For many of Bob Doyle's contemporaries, this offered hope. Things could change. During the election campaign, Cumann-Lingwale labelled Fianna Fáil's policies as communist. However, the prospect of change they offered proved the more attractive at the ballot box. In March 1932, Fianna Fáil took power, becoming only the second government since independence. Many of those who were unimpressed by what independence had delivered to date believed this heralded major change for Ireland. Indeed, some emigrants even returned home. These included an IRA veteran of the War of Independence and the Civil War called Kit Conway, who, as we shall see, went on to become a major influence on Bob Doyle's life and helped draw him into the world of politics and ultimately the IRA. In the early 1930s, Bob had, like so many of his generation, briefly emigrated to England, but in his case, after failing to find work in Liverpool, he returned to Dublin. Not long afterwards, he had a major argument with his father, after which he left the family home permanently. He found lodgings in a flat where the returned emigrant, Kit Conway, who I mentioned earlier, was living. While Kit was over twice Bob's age, the two men had much in common. While Bob had been surrounded by grinding poverty through his childhood, Conway had endured an even worse experience, having actually been born in Cahine Workhouse in South Tipperary in the late 19th century. The two men formed an unlikely friendship where Kit introduced the young Bob to the world of politics. Kit had fought in the IRA in the War of Independence and the Civil War before he had emigrated to America where he had joined the US military. He was among those who returned to Ireland in 1932 in the hope that Fianna Fáil would deliver major change to the country. However, Conway quickly grew disillusioned with Fianna Fáil after they took power and he decided to rejoin the IRA in the hope they would deliver the change he wanted to see. Given he was not only a veteran of the War of Independence, but also the fact he had served in the US Army, Kit was appointed as National Training Officer of the IRA. Not long afterwards, Bob, undoubtedly under Kit's influence, also joined the IRA in Dublin, attending training camps where he learned to use weapons and explosives. However, at this point, Bob Doyle was still relatively conservative in his political views. He was a devout Catholic who regularly attended Mass. Indeed, for those who knew him in 1932, they would have been surprised that within a few years he would travel to Spain to fight against the side supported by the Catholic Church. It was ultimately a very bizarre incident in March 1933, just as politics on the streets of Dublin were turning increasingly violent, that proved to be the incident that would radicalise Bob. However, it was a very, very unusual story. In March 1933, a series of clashes between the communist movement in Dublin and the supporters of the Catholic Church had a profound impact on Bob Doyle. Their origins lay in early 1933 when Ireland's communist movement secured a lease on a building on Great Strand Street in the north inner city, not far from where the Doyle family home was. Unbeknownst to Bob, his future was strangely bound up in the story of this short-lived building. It was formally opened on Saturday, March 4th, 
when members of the communist movement gathered in Great Strand Street. They named the building Connolly House in honour of the 1916 leader, James Connolly, who had been executed, and the communists hoped they would be able to build support within the working-class community that surrounded their new headquarters. This was, however, wishful thinking. They scarcely lasted four weeks. Almost immediately, the building became the target of the Catholic Church. Sermons in Dublin churches warned congregations that communists posed a grave threat. This inflamed anti-communist sentiment already building in the city, and Bob Doyle, a devout Catholic, was increasingly exposed to this violent rhetoric. This built to a crescendo through March, reaching boiling point just three weeks after the communists had opened their new building on Great Strand Street. In the final week of March, Bob attended Mass in Dublin's pro-cathedral, where the priest launched into a tirade against what he called the vile creatures of communism within our midst. The congregation was whipped into a frenzy, and on leaving the cathedral, they sought out a target for their pent-up anger. At the same time, the communist movement were holding a public meeting in their new headquarters only a few streets away. It was the obvious target. Large numbers of people, including a young Bob Doyle, made their way through the streets singing God Bless Our Pope. However, the mood in the crowd was ugly. The atmosphere was frenzied. The rumours circulating were totally hysterical. Bob would later recall how he was told that the communists were spitting on icons of the Blessed Virgin inside the building. Unable to gain entry to Connolly House, the crowd set about smashing the windows before seizing all of the books and pamphlets from inside and setting them on fire in the street outside. A stout defence of the building was mounted by communists and also members of the IRA, and one person was shot in the knee in what was a very serious riot. These events had a profound impact on Bob in ways that were very unexpected. Now, The following morning, he awoke to newspaper headlines declaring... Hooligans burn Connolly House. This provoked a strange reaction, leaving him extremely remorseful and perhaps confused, given some of his comrades from the IRA had defended the communists. He decided he needed to hear a different perspective on these events and took what was an unusual step when he decided to seek out one of Dublin's leading communists, Sean Murray, to hear what he had to say, particularly around what was a key issue for him, religion. This was hardly the first time Murray had faced such questions. Irish radicals had long grappled with this conundrum about how to marry political ideas and religious beliefs. In later memories of the meeting, Bob recalled how Murray cited the example of the Roscommon priest, Father Michael O'Flanagan, who was a well-known Republican socialist in the 1930s. Father O'Flanagan had regularly found himself at odds with the church hierarchy and had often been suspended from his priestly duties. However, as Sean Murray told Bob, he continued to say Mass and to believe in God. This seemed to have had a major impact on the 17-year-old. It was by no means a road to Damascus conversion for Bob Doyle, but Murray's words seemed to have helped him reconcile his religious faith with the radical political views he would develop in the coming years. Indeed, this would be crucial given major debates were about to begin in the IRA about its future at that moment. These debates would in fact lead many members to Spain, including Bob Doyle. In 1934, the prominent IRA member, the Donegal Republican, Pather O'Donnell, who will feature in the next episode, was among those to place a motion before an IRA convention being held in Dublin that year. The motion called on the IRA to establish a socialist organisation called Republican Congress. 
O'Donnell was well known for his socialist views and indeed this motion brought long-running tensions in the IRA over what direction it should take to a head. O'Donnell and others had long argued the IRA should be explicitly socialist in its outlook. Others disagreed and events back in 1931 had been a stark warning as to the consequences of adopting O'Donnell's course of action. Back in 1931 the IRA had in fact launched a new political organisation called Serera meaning Free Ireland, which was socialist in outlook. The stated aim then had been to overthrow British imperialism and its ally, Irish capitalism. The authorities back in 1931 had been deeply alarmed by the move. They saw Serera and its left-wing orientation as the start of an alliance between the IRA and Ireland's communist movement, and this deeply troubled them. There may have only been 250 communists in Ireland at the time, However, the IRA in the early 1930s had over 10,000 members, including a core of battle-hardened veterans from the War of Independence and the Civil War. In reaction to the launching of Serera in 1931, the Garda Commissioner, Owen O'Duffy, had warned the government that the safety of the state itself was at risk. He recommended urgent action and the government followed suit with drastic measures. Serera was banned along with Ireland's tiny communist movement. They also took the decision to step up repression on the IRA at the time by making even membership of the group a crime. The Catholic Church also weighed in, issuing explicit instructions to Irish Catholics that they could not be a member of the IRA or Serera. Indeed, so severe was the reaction that on that occasion, the IRA quietly dropped the entire Serera initiative. Now, memories of this haunted debates around the motion that Pather O'Donnell had put down in 1934. There was no question that the Serera debacle had proved costly. The IRA had been attacked from all sides and indeed it was only made legal again in 1932 after several months of being banned. Ultimately, Pather O'Donnell's motion to establish the group Republican Congress, which had echoes of Serera, was narrowly defeated. This had major consequences not only for O'Donnell, but also Bob Doyle and many members of the IRA who would ultimately travel to Spain in 1936. After the defeat of the motion, Pather O'Donnell and several leading figures walked out of the IRA convention and went ahead on their own to establish Republican Congress, an explicitly left-wing organisation which pledged that a republic of a united Ireland will never be achieved except through a struggle which uproots capitalism on its way. This attracted numerous members of the IRA who had been influenced by socialism and communism, including Bob Doyle's flatmate, Kit Conway. Bob's own views had clearly changed considerably in the years since he had talked to Sean Murray after the attack on the communist movement's headquarters, because he too left the IRA and joined Republican Congress. This was not that surprising though. Much of what the likes of Pather O'Donnell and other socialists in the IRA said about injustice and inequality must have struck a chord with Bob Doyle. He had, after all, witnessed grinding poverty firsthand. However, little did he know that his membership of Republican Congress would lead him and its other members down a road that would see them isolated from wider Irish society and eventually lead them to Spain. Republican Congress were involved in campaigns for better housing in the slums of Dublin and increased workers' rights but they were also increasingly drawn into bitter and violent struggles in the streets of Dublin with a fascistic organisation that had emerged in Ireland, the Blue Shirts. These were led by Owen O'Duffy, who had recently been sacked as the Garda Commissioner. 
Officially called the Army Comrades Association, they mimicked the Italian black shirts and the Nazi brown shirts, donning in their case blue shirts and the straight arm salute. Like so many cities across Europe at the time, Dublin witnessed violent clashes between these blue shirts and socialists from Republican Congress, along with communist activists as well. These could be extremely violent. While attempting to block a blue shirt march in Dublin, Bob was struck in the face with a knuckle duster. While Republican Congress drew Bob Doyle further into left-wing activism and under the influence of individuals like Pather O'Donnell, there was no doubt, though, that Republican Congress as a whole was becoming increasingly marginalised and isolated from wider Irish society at the time. In the late 1920s, the leading figures of the movement, such as Pather O'Donnell, Frank Ryan and George Gilmore, had been highly influential in wider society and exerted considerable influence over the direction of the IRA. However, by 1936, their new organisation, Republican Congress, was failing in its aims to attract and engage the working class in Ireland, leaving them marginalised with little influence. Indeed, in April 1936, while politics in Spain were reaching fever pitch, they had attempted to hold a meeting on College Green in Dublin city centre. They had invited a Scottish Communist Member of Parliament to address the crowd. This event would illustrate just how isolated they were. Several thousand people turned out, nearly all of them, to protest against the proposed event. Pather O'Donnell, who tried to address the crowd from a lamppole, was violently attacked and targeted with bottles and stones. To add further context to these events, this was a time, as we saw in last week's episode, that Aileen O'Brien was drawing significant crowds in pretty much every town across the country. The reality was becoming clear, that if Republican Congress activists had even tried to copy her, they would have been hounded out of these towns. There was no question they had failed in their objectives by 1936. As is often the case, the organisation, failing in its wider mission, was riven by internal disputes as well, and by the summer of 1936 it was on the verge of collapse. It was at that very moment when the Spanish Civil War started, and this seemed to offer its activists in many ways an exit strategy. Among those who would in time travel to Spain was Bob Doyle. He would later talk of the attraction of Spain. I thought Ireland would go fascist, and that was one of the motivating factors in making my mind up to go to Spain. I didn't know much about Spain, but I knew my thoughts were that every bullet I fired would be against the Dublin landlords and capitalists. While we'll rejoin Bob Doyle later in the series, next week we travel to Spain, where we join Pather O'Donnell, a leading Irish socialist republican, and one of the figures who had inspired Bob Doyle. In July 1936, O'Donnell, a veteran of the War of Independence and the Civil War, had more or less retired from political activism after the failure of Republican Congress, and he travelled to Spain to write. He was only there a matter of weeks when he was thrown back into political activism when the Spanish Civil War started. This war would be for him, and indeed many back in Ireland, an extension of the struggles they had fought at home. I'll see you next week when we travel to Spain for the first time. In the meantime, don't forget to check out those pins at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Until next time, Sloan.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.